But before we begin, I, I need to ask an important question. I'm taking a bit of a risk here because I can't see the response on the stream. But from a show of hands, did any of you meet your significant other on a reality television show? <laughs> All right, good. We're safe. It was a few years ago, and every Monday night, some friends of ours in Brooklyn and I would get together and we would watch one of the greatest television shows the world has ever known called The Bachelor, because nothing brings about genuine love like a six weeks of filming together spread out over four months of airing where everybody there is crying and wondering, why are you falling in love with nine other people other than me? I didn't sign up for this. When in actuality, that's exactly what you signed up for. And our wives were engrossed with this drama. And my friend and I were just threatening the whole time to go to reality. Steve and Ruin, who actually won the, won the if you want to call it, won the proposal. Whoever won the proposal at the end. And then be like, stop, leave us alone. And it was just a wonderful routine that we would do every Monday night. We'd eat dinner together, and it was great. Well, one Monday night, we were leaving their house. And we were driving, and about a half mile away from their house in a residential area, the car just began to shake. And it was unmistakable. We had a flat tire. So I pulled off to the side of the road, and I, I went to get my cell phone out for the flashlight, and my cell phone was dead. I'm like, oh, great. Can't, can't find where that is. So we decided we would turn around and drive back to our friend's house and tackle the flat tire from there. On our way back, my wife sees, sees her friend, and she's out. She, we just watched The Bachelor together, but she's out with her flashlight on, looking all over the street. And so we roll down the window and we're like, hey, what's going on? And they had one of those three-pound dogs that should be called a cat, but it barks. So it's a dog. I mean, just a tiny little thing that if you stepped on it, you would just destroy it. But they had, they had one of those. And when we had left, unbeknownst to everybody, it ran out the door. And so it was running all over the neighborhood, they thought. And so they didn't know where their dog was. And so my wife hops out of the car with me and helps her friend go look for the dog. So I drive back to their house and then her husband's there and he gets out and we open up my trunk and I don't have a tire jack in my trunk for some reason. And I'm like, but you guys have two cars. I'm sure there's a tire jack there. No tire jack. Like, all right. Well, their neighbor were Jeff and Nicole, and Jeff and Nicole went to church with us. So we went over to Jeff and Nicole's house, and we knocked, and, and they came out, and after they figured out we weren't there to rob them, put the guns away, and then they're like, how can we help you? And we're like, hey, we have a flat tire. Do you have anything that, to help us out? And they're like, oh, yeah. And if you ever had a flat tire, you wanted to go to Jeff and Nicole's house because you would have thought, these guys owned a tire shop. They had my car jacked up in no time, and Jeff's taking the lug nuts off. And I'm like, hey, Jeff, how can, I, how can I help? How can I give you a hand? He said, you can stand right over there. That's what you can do. And so I just stood over in the distance and watched Jeff take my tire off. He put the spare on. He tightened it up. He pulled off the old tire. He showed me where the screw was in the tire, told me exactly where to take it, said they'll be able to put a patch right here. You won't have to buy a new tire. It was a, it was a fantastic experience, best flat tire experience I've ever had. And so I'm getting ready to then go find my wife and her friend, and they come walking up their driveway with the dog 
dog, holding it like like it's a holding it like it's a baby. You know, the dog's head's up and it's laying on its back and it's being rocked in in our friend's arms as she walks the dog home. And it just reminded me that night that that night wasn't a terrible experience because we had others. Because we had others. My greatest fear in, in light of the quarantine and in light of everybody's social distancing is that in that process, it's very easy to become distant. And the reality is this. We were made to live in community. We were made to need one another. Now, I know some of you are introverted, and you're like, nope, these last four months have been phenomenal. I have never loved four months of my life more than not having to see or talk to anybody. This has been great. I don't see what all the stress is about. I wish every month could be like that. But even if that's you, even if that's you, I guarantee there, are, there is someone in your life there is someone in your life, whether they're a personal connection or whether it's through interpersonal connection, whether it's via uh, an app or online chat, whatever the, whatever the case may be, there is someone in your life that you're still connected with. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the smallest books in the Bible. It's just a little one-chapter one chapter book, but it's also one of the most personal books in the Bible. And it's a New Testament book called Philemon. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to download the Bible app if you haven't already. It's a great resource that we highly encourage everybody to use. And just go to your app store and type in Bible. It's the first one that pops up. Download that. And within the Bible app, there's a feature called Events. And once you're in the events feature, you can follow along with us. That way you can highlight verses, you can write down notes, you can ask questions or things you want to ponder or come back to later. Highly recommend you, you incorporate that. So we'd invite you to follow along there. But over the course of these next two weeks, as we look at Philemon, this is what we want you to process with us. It's this. When we encounter Jesus, it forces us to change. This change mandates that we notice others not merely ourselves. It causes us to act and react to circumstances and situations very differently than we otherwise would. It impacts every relationship and response we have. And so we invite you to join us as we investigate Philemon over these next two weeks, starting today, and we're going to start in verse 1 right now where we read these words. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Paphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So the first thing we see here are five individuals who are named right off the bat. First, there's Paul. And if you're familiar with, with the Bible at all, even just a, just a beginning knowledge of the Bible, you've at some point heard of Paul. Paul wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and Paul has a unique story because Paul didn't start out loving Jesus. In fact, just the opposite. Paul hated Jesus. And not only that, but he hated everybody who followed Jesus. And yet he had an encounter that drastically changed his life. And some of you have been there because some of you started out with no desire whatsoever to follow Jesus. In fact, you hated pretty much everything there was that you knew about Jesus. And not only that, but the people who followed Jesus, you really hated them. And 
And you now look back and what a transition God's done in your life because the reality is when you have an encounter with God, it changes everything. And Paul was one of those individuals who had that encounter. He went from hating God and hating people who followed God to arguably doing more for people who've, who've made the decision to follow Jesus than anyone else. Just a drastic change in his life. And yet, here we are at the time of his writing Philemon, and it's cost him a lot. It's cost him a lot. So much so, he's in prison. And this forces us, this forces us to be reminded of the fact that God never promised us an easy life. God never made a guarantee that if we would make the decision to follow him, that everything in our lives would go smoothly and we would lead an easy life. That's not a biblical concept. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus made us a promise. He said, if you follow me, you're going to face opposition. He said, there are going to be people in the world who hate you. Why wouldn't there be? There were people in the world who hated me. And if you are really following me, of course you're going to find people who hate you. This is just a sobering reminder for us all that God does not give us a guarantee that if we follow him, our lives will be easy and everything will be great and in our favor. In fact, many times it's just the opposite. But here's Paul writing this book from prison. And then he mentions Timothy. He mentions Timothy, our brother Timothy. And Timothy was somebody who was younger than Paul, and Paul came alongside him and mentored him. He mentored Timothy. And this is a reminder for us all that we need to have people in our lives that we're pouring into. We need to have people in our lives who we're taking the experience that we've gained, and we're, we're sharing that knowledge with them. We're paying it forward. We're taking them alongside, and we're mentoring them intentional, deep relationships where we come alongside people and we share with them the lessons that we have learned. And similarly, we all need to have people that we are mentoring, but we also all need to have people who are pouring into our lives as well. We all need to have a Paul. We all need to have somebody who's gone before us, who speaks into our lives, who we trust and who we listen to, understanding that we don't have all the answers. And so having somebody in our lives who serves as a mentor and also having people in our lives who we are pouring into is the community that God has called us all to be a part of, that we aren't called to go through life alone, and there is a need for each other, how God's wired us and how God's designed it. And so you need to have people constantly in your life who are pouring into you, and you need to have people in your life as well that you are pouring into. And so you should always be able to answer that question of who's pouring into my life and whose life am I pouring into. Always be ready for that. And then we're introduced to three people. We're introduced to Philemon, to Apaphia, and to Archippus. Now, Remember, the early church met in homes. They didn't have buildings or facilities to meet in, so they met in houses. And one of the, one of the houses where a church met was Philemon, and so he was one of the leaders of the church. And Paul's writing to him, and Apaphia is his wife, and Archippus is his son. So this is the context of this book, Philemon. Then we continue. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace and peace is how Paul starts a lot of his letters in the New Testament, and it's a continual theme. When he writes, he oftentimes writes grace and peace. And this is a reminder for us that our lives as people who follow Jesus should be full of grace and peace. Now, that does not mean, as we just talked about, that everything's going to be easy in our lives. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be pleasant. But when we face times of uncertainty, when we face unpleasantries in life, that does not strip us of our graciousness, and it does not strip us of our peace. And it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be times where we face situations that cause us fear, that cause us anxiety and uncertainty. We're human. All of us are going to experience those situations and those circumstances in life. But if those, if those emotions and if those thoughts are ruling the day, and if fear and uncertainty and anxiety is what defines us, and we cannot look and find the grace and the peace in our lives, then that is a dead giveaway that things are out of balance in our lives, and as people who follow Jesus, we need to rediscover the balance that he provides. Because our circumstances do not define our stories. Our circumstances are not our ultimate conclusion. But we have to remember, we have to remember that it isn't unspiritual, or that we don't love Jesus enough if we experience times of uncertainty, and we experience fear and doubt, and anxiety, but if those thoughts and if those themes rule the day, then that is a dead giveaway that something in our life is out of balance because God has called us to a life of grace and peace. And so as people who follow him, these need to be defining characteristics of our lives because these describe the best of the life that God has for us. He goes on and he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. He says, I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your love. I'm thankful for your faith. I'm thankful for others. And this causes us to ask the question of, are people thankful that we're in their lives? Are people thankful when they're, that we're in their lives? When people look at us, do, do they know that, hey, I'm so glad you're a part of my life because of your love, because of your support, because of your sharing, because of all of these things. When people think of us, do they think, I'm glad that person's in my life? And one of the best ways, one of the best ways and one of the easiest ways that we can get to that point where people get to the point where they're like, hey, I'm really glad that you're in my life, is to just ask ourselves a question or not even a question, but maybe even just remind ourselves of something as we face different circumstances. Just remind ourselves as we face trying times, as we face difficult circumstances, just pause, take a deep breath, and just remind yourself, don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk. When they mess up your order, you can tell them about it. Just don't be a jerk about it. Just let them know, hey, you messed up my order. Could you fix it, please? Just don't be a jerk. When you're on hold for 27 minutes, and it's the same repetitive hold music. That's awful. And then you get connected with somebody who can't hear you and you can't understand. And so you ask to speak to somebody else. And then you're on hold for 17 more minutes to get connected with a supervisor who doesn't understand what they're doing and is inept at your job. You can point all those things out, but just don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk in the process. 
as you walk through life, just a general rule of thumb, a good rule of thumb, a good reminder, just to remind yourself every day is don't be a jerk. Just don't be a jerk. And our world would look entirely differently right now if everybody collectively would just exhale and just tell themselves, don't be a jerk. And then just take another deep breath and move on with their lives. Live in such a way that people are glad that you're in their life, especially as followers of Jesus. We need to live in such a way that people are glad that we're in their lives. Then he continues and he says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, sharing of your faith in this context means sharing of all of your life, sharing of all of your life. And he's saying this, I want you to share your life with others that you may experience every good thing in us for the sake of Christ. I grew up a couple hours away from the best amusement park in the world called Cedar Point. If you're a roller coaster enthusiast, you've heard of it. I remember growing up, they had the first roller coaster in the world that went over 200 feet tall. It was called the Magnum. It was, it was great. And then years later, they would introduce the first roller coaster in the world that was over 320 feet tall called the Millennium Force. And then... A few years after that, they introduced the Top Thrill Dragster, which is 440 feet tall. It launches you out, I believe it's 75 miles an hour. You have to put your head back when they launch you. Otherwise, you're going to have a concussion, and your brain's going to look like you played football because it'll just rattle, just rattle your head. So you've got to put your head back when they launch you. And then before you even know what's happening, I mean, the entire ride's something like 8 to 10 seconds. Before you even know what's happening, you're 400 feet in the air looking down, and then the ride is done, and you feel the wind that whips through your hair, and, and you've lost your voice. You scream, but it takes a few seconds for your voice to catch up with you, and your contacts are dried out from the wind that has just been blowing into your eyes on the ride. I could talk to you all day about how incredible that experience is, and if you're not a roller coaster enthusiast, you'll just shake your head at me and be like, why would anybody willingly put themselves through that, let alone pay money to go experience that. And if you are a roller coaster enthusiast and you haven't ridden it, you're like, yes, take me there. I want to ride that so bad. But the reality is we could talk about it all day long, but until you experience it for yourself, you can't fully appreciate it. So it is with the life of following Jesus. You're not a, if you're not somebody who's made the decision to follow Jesus, we can talk to you all day long about the benefits. We can talk to you all day long about how our lives are different and they're changed and they're better as a result of following Jesus. But until you make that decision for yourself, until you make the choice to follow Jesus, you will never experience the exhilaration of following Jesus. For some, somebody in your life that you so desperately want to make the decision to follow Jesus, and for the life of you, you just can't understand why wouldn't they make this decision? The reality is you can tell them all day long, but until they experience it for themselves, never fully. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You have encouraged me because of what you've done for so many others. He's saying, Philemon, I'm encouraged when I hear about you because of how much you have done for other people. I am so glad that you're in my life. And then he continues, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. And here he just slams on the brakes. And not only slams on the brakes, but go back to Go back to childhood when you're buckled into your seatbelt, you've got airbags all around you, and mom slams on the brakes and she throws out her arm and clotheslines you across the neck because the seatbelt isn't just going to be enough to keep you safe and the airbags aren't going to be enough to save your life. You need mom's clothesline cutting off your air supply, uh, grinding her forearm across your neck to keep you safe in the incident you get, you get into an accident. And that's what he's doing here. He's just slamming on his brakes and he's throwing out his arm and he says, I could tell you what to do. I could tell you what you have to do. I'm going to ask you instead. I could command you to do something, but I'm going to give you the option instead. Now remember, following Jesus, it compels us to do things. Following Jesus compels us to do things. And here Paul's saying, I could compel you to do things, but instead, I'm going to ask. And he writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Here we're introduced to the sixth person, Onesimus. And some of you thought you had it rough with the name growing up, all right? Like, here, here's Onesimus, the sixth person mentioned. He met Paul, and more importantly, he met Jesus through Paul. And so Onesimus meets Paul, and Paul introduces him to Jesus, and he makes the decision to follow Jesus with his life. Now, Onesimus, believe it or not, means useful. And so Paul's doing a wordplay here on his name and on his, his value and his worth. And so basically what Paul writes is he's writing, useful was useless to you, but now he's useful to you and to me. It's the old who's on first comedy routine, essentially. I mean, that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying useful, Onesimus, whose name means useful, he was useless to you, but now he's useful to you and to me. One more thing I should probably tell you. Onesimus, he was a fugitive. He's a fugitive. He was on death row. That if Onesimus, who Paul met, and introduced him to Jesus, would have been caught by the authorities. He would have been killed. The reason? Because Onesimus 
as a runaway slave. And in those days, if a slave ran away from his master, he would be executed. He would be put to death. So this runaway slave in the providence of God meets the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul walks through life with him, points him to Jesus, and this runaway slave makes the decision to surrender his life to Jesus. Just one more. Philemon, guy who's encouraged so many, who's helped so many in their faith, who's full of love, sharing, and openness, who's been a benefit to all who know him for the cause of Jesus. Philemon? He was the owner of Onesimus. He was the slave owner. This causes us to ask some really big questions, both of ourselves personally, but also here at Lakeside. The implications of this are rich. So we're just going to unfold some of those. First, we see it on full display right now, and it's on both sides of the political aisle. We see it on full display right now, but never before has a culture been so giddy about, about canceling. We live in cancel culture right now where if you have a different perspective than somebody, they attack you. And their entire desire is to get you shut down. They want to silence you. And that's on full display right now. And not only is it on full display, but it's being fully celebrated from both sides. That everybody wants to cancel everybody who disagrees with them. I just want to remind you all of something we must remind ourselves of. And that's in this height of cancel culture. We must be reminded and we must remember that everyone has flaws. Everyone has flaws, including us, including ourselves. That we all have flaws in our lives. Here, in Philemon, we have someone who accomplished so much for so many, who, who encouraged so many, who loved so many, who spurred on so many, and yet he owned a slave. And this slave ran away, and this slave would be executed if he was discovered. And yet, Paul doesn't command, but instead he says, the love of God compels. The love of God compels you to change this. So I'm not going to command it, but I'm asking you, do the right thing. 
So does this mean the scripture's okay with slavery? No. It's just the opposite. But why doesn't scripture make a more compelling case? We'll talk about that next week. We all have flaws. Every single one of us. So what are the implications for us as a church? For us at Lakeside? Lakeside is a place where everyone is welcome. Lakeside is a place where everyone is welcome. And that is, it's easy to embrace that ideal. It's easy to embrace that ideal when you think it's a platitude or you think it's a value statement that a church puts on a website and, and everybody can feel good about that. It's, it's, easy to, it's easy to embrace that ideal from afar and to, to be behind it. But when we say it, we really mean it. That Lakeside must be a place where everyone is welcome. And so if we really mean that, and it's not just an ideal or a platitude or a value statement, but if it's something to our core and to our DNA that we hold dear, what we mean is we must be a church where the anarchist is welcome. We must be a church where the racist is welcome. We must be a church where the rapist is welcome. We must be a church where the murderer is welcome. That gets really difficult. Because honestly, at our core, that means we look out. There are people that we vehemently disagree with. Vehemently. We're going to say Lakeside's a place where you're welcome? How can that be? Because the gospel is available to the anarchist. And the gospel is available to the racist. And the gospel of Jesus is available to the rapist. And the gospel of Jesus is available to the murderer. And it doesn't mean that to say you're welcome here, we invite you in and we say, oh, we hope all is well and we hope, we hope everything's great in your life. We invite you in and we say, for the love of God, we hope you change. For the love of God, we hope. That there's a difference made. For the love of God, we hope you have an encounter with Jesus and that encounter compels you to change because a true encounter with Jesus always compels us to change. But we must be a place that all are welcome because the gospel is available to all. And what that means is sometimes there are going to be some people here on a human level that frankly we kind of at our core would rather wish they probably weren't here because we really hate what they've done. We really hate what they represent. And yet the love of God must be greater in us, through us, and in spite of us, to see that person as God sees that person, and to see that the gospel is available to all. We all have flaws. 
Y'all need redemption. That the cause of Jesus is big enough when He's choosing His disciples. Pick Matthew, the tax collector. It didn't get more pro-government than the tax collector. And here he is, Matthew, the tax collector. And Jesus says, follow me, Matthew. And this pro-government tax collector goes and follows Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon, the zealot the very group who was working to undermine the government, the very group that wanted to overthrow the government, the very group that hated everything about Matthew and hated everything that he represented, that pointed out the corruption, and they just despised the government, and they worked to overthrow them. And Jesus tells Simon the Zealot, come follow me. And Simon the Zealot follows Jesus. And now within Jesus' closest group, you have the pro-government tax collector and the zealot who wants to overthrow the government. And I don't know for sure, but I'd love to think Jesus made them roommates. I'd love to hear those conversations. The gospel's bigger. Cause is bigger. That's our focus. If we're going to say we're a church where everyone is welcome, what we mean, everyone is welcome. For the love of God, we want them to change. Because they need to change. And we need to change. Because the gospel compels us to do just that. We all be changed as a result of following Jesus. God, I pray that in this world that's out of control, going crazy, that your love would win. And I pray, God, that it would start with me. And it would start with us. We would be a place where all are welcome. Understanding that that means sometimes it's going to be hard. But that's what the gospel compels us to do. I pray, God, that we would see lives changed 
in this place for your glory. I pray, God, we would see people meet you here. You would use us to be just a small part of your story. That we truly would welcome all. I pray, God, that we would live our lives in such a way that people are excited that we're in their lives. That we'd be known for our love. We'd be known for our goodness. God, I pray we would all remember to look in the mirror. Not worry about everybody else. Start with the areas of our lives that need to change. For our love for you. Help us. Use us for your glory. Your son, Jesus' name we pray.